You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. So thankful that you chose to be here this morning to worship with us. Um, My name is Brad. I'm the teaching elder here. Love to get to know you a little better, so please seek me out afterwards, and I'd love to at least know who you are. Um, I am at the stage of life where I'm almost at the stage of life where I'm hiding my Easter eggs, my own Easter eggs, so I'll see you again next week for the first time if you decide to come back. Just kidding. Just kidding. Well, I have a question for you. Do you like mazes? I'm talking about all kinds of mazes, puzzles, corn mazes, the the fun house mirror or the fun mirror house at carnivals or the, the state fair. I think I've been in a house of mirrors one time. And if I'm not mistaken, I stayed fairly close to the front. I'm not getting back in there and, you know, finding myself uh, trying to get out of a maze like that. I'm not crazy about going in blindly and not knowing how I'm going to get out. A lot of people treat life like a fun house of mirrors. They assume they're smarter than those who have gone before, and they are convinced that they can figure life out, especially in league with those of a similar age and a similar way of looking at the world. But if we don't know history, we have no proper way of evaluating the world as it is, and we surely don't know where we're going. I have bad news for you. But you already suspect this if you don't know it outright. AI is not going to save us from ourselves. It's just not. Way back in the 5th century, for the second time in like three minutes, I'm going to quote St. Augustine, who said, those who lack the Christian understanding of history are doomed to wander in a circuitous maze, finding neither entrance nor exit. Now, if you know very little about about history and you care less than you know, then you could be feeling rather discouraged or frustrated or even angry about now. May I encourage you to hang in there and receive uh, today's text, receive the intent of today's text, which is no matter how bad the world gets or how difficult our personal lives become, God wins. And that's exceedingly good news. I'm going to talk about how the world is divided into two groups of people over and over. But here's another division of of people into two groups of people. Those who have seen Hamilton and those who are sick of hearing about seeing Hamilton. But I kept thinking all week long, there's a scene in Hamilton at the end of the war And Jefferson and Hamilton and Washington are all there and they're saying, we won, we won, we won. And that's what it's going to be like in heaven when the last judgment comes. And no matter what life is like now, it's going to be that way. While the word for Daniel and the believers in Babylon was encouraging, we understand so much more than Daniel did after the incarnation, life, crucifixion, burial, 
resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even Daniel understood. As we go along in his prophecy, we will see how important this Old Testament book of Daniel is for believers. In case you missed last Sunday, we began our study of Daniel's disturbing disturbing and fantastical visions that were chronicled in the 6th century BC. We have just after Christmas here moved into the second half of the book of Daniel, read the did the first half before Christmas, but now we're into the prophetic section. Chapter 7 was written somewhere around 550 BC. Last week in Daniel 7, 1 through 8, um, we observed Daniel's vision of the four beasts which represented four empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, although there's a little debate about that last Beast, and we're going to talk about that today and next Sunday. It's going to be a bit more detail on the four beasts in today's text, and then much more detail, especially about one of those beasts, in next week's text. This morning, our text is Daniel 7 9 through 14, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 just to provide context and remind us where we are in. This story, you can remain seated for this first portion of the reading. Daniel 7:1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea. We're going to see next week. It's out of the earth. It's the same. He's just talking about the chaotic sea in this chaotic scene. Different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet it was different from all the other beasts that <clears throat> considered the horns, no, excuse me, that were before it and had ten horns. I better go back to this reading. That's a, this text is a little larger. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them a little one, from the horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great or arrogant things. Now, if you would, please stand for the remainder of the reading of the word. 
As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousands, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not pass be destroyed. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you and be seated. Thanks be to God indeed. As we begin today's text with the part of Daniel's vision that is a response to the horror of the four beasts representing four kingdoms that would devastate the nations. The last one having special a special animus toward the people of God. Again, a lot of this is not going to come up until next week. My initial intent was to do verses 9 through 28 this morning. Then I decided 9 through 28, parts 1 and 2 this week and next. But it's easier just to stop at 14. But a lot of the things that are hinted at here are going to be described in detail when we get to the text next week. What a response this is to the four beasts. Just after Daniel witnessed the fourth, fourth beast, which was terrifying, we see the Ancient of Days coming into a courtroom, and we can know for certain that court is in session. Imagine how much this meant to Daniel, who had, been, who had witnessed Numbers and numbers, countless numbers probably, of courtroom scenes in Babylon. Unjust, unfair, people sentenced to death who had done nothing wrong just because they were on the king's bad side. Now Daniel sees the ancient of days with the wisdom of eternity symbolized by his white hair. His white robes symbolized holiness. And God's power and readiness to judge is symbolized here by his fiery throne. This is the one who sits down to judge the kings and the kingdoms of the world. Make sure you understand that. Whenever it says kings, it could say kingdoms. Whenever it says kingdoms, it could say kings. They're used interchangeably here. So the kings represent entire kingdoms. The judgment, this judgment will be just. You know how we can know? Because it will be by the book. 
If we weren't certain about judgment as a theme in verse 9, it's clear from verse 10 as we see fire issuing out from before him, from the throne all around him. So, speaking of God's people who will be called saints of the Most High later in Daniel 7, it's likely that they are the ones who will sit with the Lord in judgment, sit on the thrones in judgment. We know from Luke 19, or excuse me, Matthew 19, Luke 22, Revelation 4, Revelation 11, that the apostles and other humans sit on thrones in judgment. Maybe you never thought about that, but think about how the whole picture and the scenario is flipped. These kings judging God's people, and in the end, it's going to be God's people judging these great nations and rulers of empires. A thousand thousands will serve the ancient of Ancient of days, and 10,000 times 10,000 will stand before him. And these are most likely angels. Angels, we never see angels in scripture sitting down. We see them flying, we see them standing, but we never see angels sitting. So here's a question Do you think the thousand thousands and the 10,000 times 10,000 represent an exact number in each of those cases? Or are they symbolic? In Revelation 19, we're going to see all 24 elders or see the 24 elders on the thrones and countless multitudes of angels and believers worshiping the Lord with all their hearts together. Or or should I say with all our hearts together. In verse 11, Daniel's vision reverts to the fourth beast and the little horn who speaks arrogant words. Even as he stands before the eternal ancient of days for judgment. That's amazing, isn't it? This little horn, this one that is represented by this little horn, knows the power and authority of God. And still he's spewing out hate and vitriol toward the Lord. We're going to learn more about this individual next week. But for now, we see that its mouth is stopped and it's killed. The other beast lived for a time, verse 11 tells us, but the the defiant one is killed. His vision after after verse 10 reverts back in verse 11 to the fourth beast and the little horn who is speaking these arrogant words. So what does it mean that this one was killed but the others lived? So verse 11, I think I'm behind on the slides back there, whoever's back there. Is that David? I'm behind on a slide. If you would... Put that up because this is important just before we go into this. What does it mean that this one was killed, but the other one, the other ones lived? There are two primary interpretations, although who knows how many variations there are of these interpretations. I'm going to give a brief explanation here 
And then next week, we will cover this in more detail as we get to verses 15 to 28. Uh, These positions come from an amillennial view of Scripture and a dispensational premillennial view of Scripture. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, out on the um, table by the offering boxes just outside of the sanctuary on the left, there are some sheets that give all four positions, all four millennial positions. Postmillennial, historical premillennial, dispensational premillennial, and amillennial. Amillennial essentially means, ah, there ain't going to be no millennium. You know, it's not going to be a thousand years where there's Jesus ruling on the earth. And we, it's, amillennialists believe, postmillennialists believe, historic premillennialists believe that when Jesus come back, comes back, that's the end of things. And we're going on into the new heavens and the new earth. Dispensational premillennialists, which probably is what most of you have been exposed to, or premillennialism for most of your lives, believes that it's all spaced out differently than the others believe it is. There's going to be this church age, and then at the end of the church age, Jesus is going to come back and secretly rapture his church. Then there's going to be seven years of tribulation on the earth, and during those seven years, Um, The Antichrist is going to wreak havoc on any who claim to be the person of people of God. And in dispensationalist view, that means the Jews. They're going to be attacking the Jews because the church will already be gone with the rapture. At the end of that time, the Lord is going to come back and Satan is going to be judged. The Antichrist is going to be judged. Satan is bound for a thousand years. And then he reigns on earth, but there will be unbelievers during the millennial reign. And at the end of the millennium, all the dead are resurrected, and that is when everybody is judged fully. So that's an overview that I had not planned to give. I hope it's not more confusing, but maybe it'll help make sense of these two different views. I want to remind you over and over as we come to these matters of prophecy, they are third-tier doctrinal issues. They're not closed-fisted issues. They're open-handed issues. We can disagree on these, and we most certainly do disagree on these, how the Lord has indicated that the world will come to an end and that we will be with him eternally. But it's not in any way worth breaking fellowship over, and far less is it even... Or, or, or also, it's not even getting angry over. I mean, just don't be upset if somebody disagrees with you. So first, let's talk about the amillennial position that suggests the fourth beast of Daniel's vision represents the Roman Empire. The reason that this beast was different from the others, Daniel is implying, or at least so the amillennialists believe, is that it was not conquered by another worldwide emperor. And when I say a worldwide emperor, uh, an empire, that indicates the known world of the readers of Scripture, which included Europe, the Middle East, Africa, and some little bit knowledge of Asia. 
So you've got the Babylonian Empire, and the Medes and Persians swallowed that up. Some vestiges were left of the Babylonian Empire in the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the Greeks swallowed them up, and, and, and it keeps growing. And then this other worldwide emperor, uh, the emperor of Rome, swallows up all of the other empires. But after the Roman Empire... There's no other great worldwide empire. Never has been. We consider ourselves a superpower, right? But we don't rule the whole world. We may have an impact on what the whole world does, but we don't rule the whole world. We don't desire to rule the whole world. There are nations that do desire to rule the whole world, but that is going to be extremely different. So difficult. So at the end of the Roman Empire, that was it. The ten kings that we read about, we're going to read about next week, are represented by the ten horns on this fourth beast. And they, according to this view, arise out of the Roman Empire because no one king can conquer the whole world anymore. And it represents the Roman Empire being broken off into numerous different sections, each governed by a ruler. Ten, in this view, is meant to be symbolic, just like the angel's numbers, the, uh, number that was given in multiples of ten, a thousand thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. So then there is the dispensational view uh, of Daniel 7, Verses 11 and 12, and it also incorporates some of the rest of the chapter. And by the way, just put this on church center this morning. The four positions are on a sheet outside if you want it that way, but it's also on church center. You can pull it up, the four different uh, views about that thousand years that is talked about in Revelation 21 through 10. Since the dispensational view is based on a literal understanding of prophecy, except where symbolism is obvious, this ten-king federation must be in power for the Antichrist to rise. So in the amillennialist view, view, the ten kings rise out of the, the Roman Empire. In this view, um, the ten kings are a part of the federation and the Antichrist comes to power through them. All of this happens... After the rapture, but before Jesus' second advent, which brings the banishment of Satan to the bottomless pit for a thousand years of the millennial reign of Christ on earth. The reason that the other three beasts or the other kingdoms are allowed to live and exist is because some unbelievers will go through the millennium, but Jesus will rule with the rod of iron. There's no monkey business going on in the millennium, even if you're an unbeliever. You have to stay in line or it will be punished severely and quickly. At the end of the millennium, all unbelievers will be resurrected to stand before the final judgment. So their judgment will come at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. The Antichrist will have been judged earlier. So that's how he's destroyed the others live. After that final judgment, though, the new heavens and the new earth will commence. So, is your head spinning about right now? 
Look, if we were doing this in a Bible study, and it, it would be a whole different thing. You could ask questions. We could have a whole lot more notes in front of us. But trying to preach through this, a little bit challenging. Peter Bartowski, right as I was coming up, didn't say, God bless you. I'm praying for you. He said, good luck. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> and I appreciated your wishes. I'm sure you would guess, even if you didn't know, that there are many more points I could have added here and objections to both views. But we're going to leave it for now and wait until next week to go deeper. And some of you are now saying, oh, goody. Fortunately for us this morning, we return to two extremely important verses that we can all agree on, verses 13 and 14. Look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. In Psalm 24, 8, after describing a magnificent king, Jesus or David uh, asked, King David asked, who is this king of glory? And the New Testament answers it clearly, it's Jesus. But we could ask the same thing after reading verse 13. Who is this son of man? While the New Testament leaves no doubt that this one is Jesus, let's first derive what we can from Daniel as Daniel is looking forward to the Messiah. And he understands, and, the, and, and, and all the believers of, of Israel begin to understand, Daniel is pointing toward a Messiah as well as Isaiah and others in the Old Testament. But they're looking for a different kind of Messiah that came to them. They were looking for a military conqueror, a hero, who would throw off the shackles of Rome. And while that's going to happen at the end when Jesus judges all the nations... It didn't happen during his first advent, and so it threw a lot of people off. Let's think, look at Daniel, though, and, and see why people should have understood Jesus' claims and that there was enough evidence to support his claims if you would only believe. That's the thing about Christianity. If you're looking for enough evidence to believe, you're not going to ever find it that way. You have to believe the word. And when you believe, there is more than enough evidence to support your belief. And it becomes clearer and clearer every day. But So let's just imagine ourselves in the Old Testament looking forward. This one is like a son of man. So he's human, but he comes on clouds of heaven, clouds of glory. We would say, so he must be divine as well. And then, not only that, he comes to the ancient of days and is presented before him to be ready to judge the nations. So he's divine and yet he's separate from the ancient of days. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Daniel 7, 13 is a beautiful illustration of John 1, 1. Jesus' favorite title for himself during his ministry was the Son of Man. Although you're going to consider this in home group, I want us to think about Jesus' claim to this title and the response of the Jewish religious leaders who had accused him of blasphemy that was worthy of death. In Matthew 26, Jesus is standing before the Pharisees, and there is this exchange that happens. When Jesus is on trial for his life, Jesus has been deflecting and not answering their questions. And then finally, they've had enough. In verse 62 of Matthew 26, we read this. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is this? What is it that these men testify against you? They were testifying that Jesus had claimed to be the son of God. But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power, coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest said, oh, you must be the Messiah of Daniel 7. Man, we got it all wrong. No, then the high priest tore his robes and he said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. So there was no doubt amongst the Pharisees who Jesus was claiming to be. Now, think about the irony in this scene. If Jesus is who he claims to be, the son of man of Daniel 7, He is standing not only before a human court, but a religious court convened by the people of the Old Testament, the people of God, and yet they are rejecting the one who claims to be the Son of God. If Jesus is who he says he is, this is going to be completely flipped one day. The Ancient of Days is going to be there, and the Son of Man is going to come up, take his authority from the Father, and he's going to judge those who judged him in a heavenly court. They'll be no better than the beast of Daniel 7. All who reject Jesus will come to the same fiery end or so, we're told in the New Testament, which affirms the truth of the Old Testament. Daniel 7, 14 assures us that the kingdom of the Son of Man will be eternal and that it will be for the amazing good of all who serve and worship Him. Amen. As we close, three quick 
points of application. And you'll need to fill in a lot of the blanks in your heart and mind. Beginning with this. First, give history a chance. The world is divided into two groups. Those who like or love history and those who do not like or love history in the slightest. I understand uh, how it might be for those of you who don't like history. I want to speak to you for just a moment. You remember from the first of the message that Augustine said, those who don't know history are, are, are doomed to wander in this circuitous maze with neither entrance nor exit. You're just sort of there. While you might object that the great kingdoms of the ancient world existed before or during the time of Christ, so it can't really be considered Christian history, we can't fully understand Revelation without understanding Daniel. And, and what, is the, what are the Christian scriptures? They don't begin in Matthew. It's the whole thing. These are the Christian scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. Look, I recognize that history is as difficult for some of you as math is for me. This point is meant as an encouragement, not at all as a rebuke, not by any means. I could have said that the world is divided into two groups of people, those who had a really great history teacher and those who did not. Because if you had a really good history teacher, very likely you've got a, a far greater interest than you might have had had you not had that teacher. Might I suggest a guide for history that you might find tolerable, at least for a start? And if you really don't like history, why don't you try this book that Allison and I are working through? It's the first volume of Susan Wise Bower's History for the Classical Child. It's titled The Story of the World. How many of you have read The Story of the World? All right, that's a lot of you. A lot of you have. Look, she's got more adult-level uh, works of history but this one is great. And, and if you don't know anything about history, this will give you a good taste of how this amazing world that God created has developed over the years. Uh, if, if, if not this, then, then listen to some interesting podcast or watch the History Channel. You can worry about trying to understand the slant of history later on. History is, you know, <laughs> viewed differently by different people. So there's all of that. But just get your feet wet. Just get in there and learn about it. It's going to make the Bible easier to understand, especially this, this next year is going to be far more interesting to you if you have some interest in history. Second, trust God's wisdom, power, and rule in the best of times and in the worst of times. Now let's talk about literature. No, just kidding. We're not going to do that. Abraham asked a rhetorical question of God when the Lord told him that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Indeed he will. But scripture does not always seem to, or excuse me, life does not always seem to indicate that he is in charge. Just remember the truth of today's text. God is on the throne and the day will come when he will judge all evil and will usher in the kingdom of his son. A kingdom of righteousness and light. 
that will never fail. It may seem that evil rules and we'll get a good dose of what that looks and feels like next Sunday. But apocalyptic reminds us that God wins and that we, his people, will be blessed forever when Jesus returns. Look, it might seem a small comfort in this world of instant gratification that all tears will be wiped away. But once again, apocalyptic is designed to increase our faith to fortify our trust. And the next time you're tempted to say, that's not fair. Believe me, there's a lot in life that isn't fair. Just remember, God hasn't promised to be fair, but he has promised to be just. And he always will. He doesn't operate on our timetable. But our trust will have been worth it all when we see Jesus. To make sure we're ready for the last day, give attention to this last point. When the final judgment comes, make sure that the Son of Man, Jesus, is your advocate. In verse 10, we're told that when the Ancient of Days takes his seat, the court sits in judgment and the books are open. What do these books contain? These books contain every thought, every word, every action, every intention of ours, every single one. There will be no mistaking. There will be no justifying. How often do we fool ourselves Saying, well, I'm sure God understands this temptation of mine and this struggle of mine. Or I'm surely better than the guy down the road. How do you think we're going to do when the books are open? Someone is going to have to pay for your sins, it's not going to be your spouse. It's not going to be your parents. It's not going to be your best friend. It's either going to be you or Jesus. Daniel 7 doesn't give us the entire story about what the Son of Man is fully like. The one who comes on clouds, both divine and human. But when it's combined with Isaiah 53... We see the whole picture in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, not the New. We see it all there. Isaiah prophesied that the servant of the Lord would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Jesus died for our sins. And then Isaiah 53, along with Daniel 7, tells us that that pleased the Father, the Ancient of Days. And he gave to Jesus a kingdom 
that will never end. When we stand before God, either we will pay for our sins or we will stand in Jesus' righteousness, having believed that Jesus paid our debt, taking our punishment upon himself. So it's Bill check, Mary check, she's got to pay for hers. So-and-so check, Brad check, got to pay for his. Um, Aaron, Jesus, uh, and then he was, it's that way. Either we pay for our sins or Jesus pays for our sins with his death and resurrection before he will have paid for our sins. Either we stand on our own merits or we stand in Jesus' righteousness. The book we want to be in is the Lamb's Book of Life as it's described in Revelation 27 where all whose names are written there have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. So are you hoping that you're good enough that when you stand there, you look over there and say, I'm surely not as bad as the Babylonians. Surely you don't think of me as a Persian or a, a Roman who devastated people. No, either we stand there in our own righteousness or on our own merits or in Jesus. And I'm going with Jesus. I bet you are too. Let's pray. Well, every week, the ones of us who preach try to say at some point how important it is for us not to depend on our own goodness, but to depend on what Jesus has done for us, for our relationship with God. It's, it's not religion we're talking about. It's a relationship, a relationship with Jesus. And if you've never fully trusted in Jesus, then this would be the day to cry out to the Lord and say, I'm a sinner. I'm as guilty as any of those others who will be standing before you for judgment one day. Lord, forgive me for my sins. But I believe that Jesus died for me, that you love me enough that you sent him to live a perfect life the life that I couldn't live, and to die the death that I deserved in my place. I believe that, Father, because you said it and I believe it. Dear Lord Jesus, come into my heart and save me. If that's your heart and that's your prayer, and you belong to him, if you've done that years ago, don't be worried about it now, unless your life has said, I really didn't believe what I said. But look, don't doubt God's goodness. If you're not trusting anything else, if you're only trusting Jesus, and you are right with him, and your name is in the Lamb's book of life already, Father, May we humble ourselves before you, even those of us who are fully confident that we're saved. We, may we recognize the seriousness, the gravity of this position that we are all in. We will all stand before you. 
May we stand in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.